Hello, and welcome to Permission to Be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, joined as always by my co-host, David Roberts. Permission to Be exists to be a space of hope for those journeying to find their true, authentic selves. We hope that the story shared here will inspire you on your own journey and help you unlock the permission to be who you have always truly been. Today, we are so excited to have with us Amy Congdon. She is a counselor in training. She also has an amazing blog where she shares her story about learning and finding permission to be, which is interesting because her blog is called Learning to Be. Thank you, Amy, for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, we'll get into, um, you know, kind of the nitty gritty of all that shortly. But Amy, the first question that we ask everyone who comes on just to kind of get a feel for, I don't know, you can think of it as sort of a, like a, a, a Rorschach test or of, of sorts is um, kind of an icebreaker is inevitably because, you know, you have a, a, a bit of a platform that you're building. Becca already mentioned your blog. Um, you have a killer haiku presence on Twitter uh, that we will be directing people to. So inevitably when um, your platform becomes prolific, your counseling practice takes off and the capitalist machine that is Hollywood comes a calling. And I know we all have our price and uh, I'm sure your standards are high, but you know, we have kids to think about and student loans to pay off and, and, and whatnot. So when you finally sign on the dotted line and your life rights are given to some corporate Hollywood studio, probably by that point it'll be Disney because Disney will own everything. Um, anyway, all that right. to say is when the biopic is made of your life, when the story of Amy Congdon is told from the big screen, who will play or you know what collection of um, actors or actresses uh, will play Amy Congdon in that adaptation? All right, I think I have two people, but a third part to the to that answer. Um, and this is more based on characters that I've like watched these women play. Um, so I really highly identify with um, Carrie Russell's character Felicity in the TV mm. show Felicity from the late '90s. I think um, That's such a good show. there's something about the way that she is able to capture this raw vulnerability and emotion that I like feel inside me, but don't always uh, know how to get out. Um, mm. So that's one. And then I'm embarrassed to say that I have followed all 20 or however many seasons it is of um, Law and Order SVU and <laughs> really, really um, enjoy Mariska Hargitay's character. But also in real life, I know she's just like a really a real badass. And Ugh, so nice. I would just want that quality there too. Mm-hmm. And then the third part of my answer is that I think when any person is asked that question, they automatically think about, okay, well, who looks like me? Um, mm. And that's a tough question for me being Asian American and knowing that there's just sure. a lack of representation uh, yeah. in Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. And so that just comes to mind because I can think of a handful of people um, – but I've, I've not seen them in enough things to know, you know, whether or not I'd identify with them as actress, actresses. So, so yeah, that, that comes Excellent. to mind as well. Thank you for that nuanced answer. 
So Amy, tell us a little bit more about what started your um, journey into the counseling world. I'm curious about that. Uh, that is a great question. Um, no, I, like most people probably followed a, an odd trajectory of all the different things that I wanted to be when I grew up, starting with a high school math teacher. Uh, and then, and then I took high school math and that didn't pan out for me very well. Um, and then I wanted to be a lawyer, um, and then realized that I wanted to kind of have a life. And so that was out. Um, then I went into music and I really enjoyed that as an undergrad, mm. but as far as an actual paycheck, that's, that's pretty tough unless you're ultra talented. Yeah. And I was more just really passionate. Um, mm. And then I got married really young at 22 um, and have a husband who knew what he wanted to do from the time he was 11. And so we set out oh, wow. to pursue his education. Um, and in the meantime, I just needed to work. Um, so I kind of tried mm. a variety of things. I taught for a while. Um, but I always felt this really strong sense of calling to something significant. Mm. Um, and I couldn't figure out what that was. And kind of a uh, teacher, pastor, counselor, those things always floated yeah. to the top. And I felt really intimidated by the idea hmm. of being a therapist. I also thought you had to have a PhD. It's cool that you don't. Um, and so then all of a sudden I like started having all these friends who were going into counseling and realized that I only needed a master's degree. And that was something that felt really attainable. Um, mm -hmm. And the more that sat with me, the more it felt right. Um, and yeah, there's just something about being in the room. But then also, I think a huge part of that was my own journey as a client, um, as somebody sitting with a therapist. Um, and I've been doing that weekly for about five and a half years now. Um, yeah. And that's awesome. really been inspiring as well. Mm -hmm. I, I can relate to that. That's what started my journey of self-discovery was at the age of 30 um basically all my emotional shit hit the fan and I started counseling which then led to seven years of counseling mm -hmm. and figuring out who I actually was as a person I had uh, gotten lost in um, religion and I didn't know who I was in uh, counseling mm -hmm. Everybody needs to do it. Agreed. Everybody. Big plug for counseling. No, even if you think you're the healthiest person, everybody needs a counselor. Absolutely. So just to give listeners a little bit of context. So Amy mentioned her husband, uh, David Cogden, who I am well acquainted with because, you know, she mentioned he's known what he's wanted to do for his whole life. And so he's kind of gone on to pursue this academic career in uh, theology. And so he went to you know seminary and then got his PhD, wrote a big book. And some of the books that he has written have been very, very influential in my own uh, journey and development. And I'm sure there'll be an opportunity to talk about that, maybe even talk to him at some point. But in getting to know him and his work, I've had the opportunity to hear about the really cool journey that Amy has been on kind of filtered through his perspective and his experiences and, and so on and so forth. And so, and so kind of really the, the inspiration or the impetus for bringing Amy on was really um, beginning to follow her on social media platforms, follow her blog that, that Becca mentioned 
and and then also hearing about her from from David and really starting to be inspired and excited by her journey and wanting to hear it from her words. And so and so kind of with that context, Amy, I know, you know, just seeing on social media, reading your blog, seeing some of the things that you've posted, you know, th- you know, as you've kind of dove into this counseling journey, it's it's I know from David it's come in the midst of some pretty big transitions between um, some moves that were hard, um, some some community and vocational transitions that were difficult, um, and then some 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 just self discovery and some some taking ownership of your own identity and things like that. Around you, know, you already mentioned, uh, you know, being an Asian American, and and, and then some other areas um, that I'll, I'll let you share on. But um, start at any point in kind of all that you know, kind of, kind of mess the things I laid down there, but like, tell us a little bit, if you would, about, about some of that journey and, and just kind of some of the stuff that was, that's kind of been going on both behind the scenes and maybe even out front of kind of this professional academic journey that you've been on as well. Yeah. I think for context, um, it's important for people to know that I grew up, um, in an Asian American church, pretty conservative Christian church, um, on the West coast. And, um, that was my, I call it my like faith family of origin, um, and have since moved away from that, um, quite a bit, but that was, um, a slow and progressive journey because I went to Bible college, um, as an undergrad and, uh, that was really actually the first place where I started having questions about my faith. Um, mm. I recall particularly the moment where I thought, are we doing this right? Was there was a ballot measure for um, same-sex marriage up for a vote in Oregon. And I remember that my campus, mm. which was in the middle of the city, was just littered with signs for, I can't remember now if it was yes or no, but whatever the being against that was. And I thought, there's just no way that a community that's supposed to be built on love and um, and acceptance can be giving that message to people. And, and that just cannot be right. Yeah. Um, and so that really planted the seed for a lot of change. Um, but like David mentioned, uh, my husband went to seminary and we were doing that whole thing for about seven years plugged into a church really quickly, um, got very, very involved, and then essentially were kicked out of that church um, for being LGBTQ affirming. Um, And then took about a three-year break from church. Actually, I really didn't know if I wanted to go back, honestly. Um, And it wasn't until we moved um, from where we were for his schooling to a new location that we found ourselves in an Episcopal church, totally completely different than what I grew up in. Um, and I suddenly started mm-hmm. to feel like this was the home that I had been looking for all of this time. Um, part of that has to do with just the way that the liturgy works, this idea of being connected to people um, before me and after me and like through space and time and like how powerful that is. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that was that was like a real healing moment was finding that community and then just as we felt like we were settled into that community, we were torn away from that 
again, um, in essence, being kicked out of a faith community um, for having beliefs that didn't sit right with everybody. Um, and then we moved to where we are now, and we are in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, it is the most smallest city that I've lived in, uh, the farthest away from the coast, for certain, the least diverse, the most conservative. Um, and it's been quite challenging to find my place here. And I think that's part of why I feel like I've wanted my voice to be louder, um, is because mm. if it's not, then I'll be drowned out by this kind of sameness and, mm. um, around me. Where you're at now, is that a permanent location for you all? That is a all? great question. Or is it, you know, is it- it's an ongoing conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, it's hard. Locations have been something that's been really important to me. Um, I didn't know before I left my hometown that it was as important as it is. Um, and that is Portland, Oregon. And um, there have been some pseudo opportunities to move back. But every time that that's happened, something else has taken us to a different location. And, um, that's been something that I really had to wrestle with was like, where am I supposed to be? Like, not only who am I supposed to be, but like, where am I supposed to be? Um, mm. and, and I don't, I don't know. So I'm trying to, um, one, think about that less, but also just hold on to that idea less that I can exist as I am, wherever I am and let that be enough. What would you tell somebody who is in a very similar situation to you right now? I mean, you, you gave some language right there, but could you give a little bit more language to maybe encourage somebody? Cause there is lots of small, smallish conservative towns in our great nation <laughs> and um, with lack of diversity. And there's even pockets of bigger towns that feel the exact same way. Um what would be encouragement? Yeah. Um, on the one hand, I think it's really important for us to find physical community um, with people that are around us who we can connect with. Um, I'm really grateful for social media and the ways that that's been mm. a place for me to reach out to people and connect with other people. But I think this is just a larger lesson that I'm learning that um, it is equally important for me to be connected with other people who are like me, who I can look at and say, um, I see myself in you. And at the same time, it is equally important for me to look at myself in the mirror and, and see that I am all of who I am, regardless of who uh, can validate that around me. Um, and I, yeah, that's, that's, it's this both and kind of thing, this like living in between these spaces. And I think for people who are in those spaces, I would want to encourage you that that you can both feel excruciatingly lonely and find ways to um, build connection within yourself and and with others. So, Amy, one thing that I have found that's been powerful as I've really kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, gotten to know you from a distance through social media and through you um, kind of using those spaces to kind of find your voice, to feel heard, to feel seen, is that uh, one of the things that you've talked about is the degree to which your identity so often feels erased um, in the context you're in. So uh, you had a powerful blog post a few years ago uh, where you came out as bisexual, and and yet 
you still, um, you know, I've seen you, I've seen you note that you still get, you know, kind of these confused looks because you're married to a man. And how does that work? You know, you, you talked about, you've moved to this very, both culturally and ethnically homogenous place and, um, you know, and then had to wrestle with where your identity as an Asian American fits into that. And so, um, if you would speak to that a little, speak to both, um, the experience of that erasure and, and, um, but also how that's affected this, you know, kind of journey towards, um, elevating your voice and, you know, and kind of finding that learning to beat to, to use the name of your, uh, to blog, to frame it. Yeah. Um, well, on the one hand, I've always known that I'm Asian American. On the other hand, I came to the understanding of my sexuality, um, later in life. Um, and, and like David said, I, I identify as bisexual, um, and I am married to a man. Uh, I had a tweet about that recently where I, I said to somebody that, you know, I identify as bisexual, but I'm married to a man. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't need to say that. I can just say I am married to a man, mm-hmm. um, but I, and I identify as bisexual. Um, and I'm part of that late in the game recognition was because of my upbringing and a lack of of permission yeah. to uh, be able to recognize that, um, which is to me now humorous looking back because I I haven't really talked about this publicly, um, but the way that I experience my bisexuality is like I am not actually physically or visually attracted to men at all. Um, so I remember being a young adolescent mm. girl and having all my friends have crushes on these boys and like, um, you know, TV stars and movie stars and, and feeling really confused about that and just kind of going along with it. Um, but I was romantically attracted to, to males. So, um, so that was really, really confusing. Um, and now looking back, I'm like, oh, I, I can see how I had a lot of crushes on girls and then now women. Um, yeah. and and I fought that for a long time. Um, and uh, humorous stories, when I came out to my husband, um, his response was, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so awesome. so he, he was able to recognize that before I was willing to accept it. Um, but it is difficult. I thinking about um, about a year ago, I was sitting in a lecture and we were talking about sexuality and talking about um, queer community and bisexuality and stuff. And I'm sitting in the classroom thinking about how these people who don't know me super well, um, they, but they do know that I have a husband would never know um, that I'm bisexual or, or what that means to me and how that's important um, unless I say it. Um, and, and that can be frustrating sometimes. Or um, I know that when I tell people that I have a husband and that I'm bisexual, then I can kind of see this look go either of confusion or if it's somebody oftentimes who would identify as gay, kind of a, mm, like a hesitation of whether or not I belong in that community or not. Um, and, and it's, it is difficult um, to feel like I don't have a place sometimes in that community um, racially, we live in a suburb of Kansas City that I think the school district numbers are like less than 2% Asian American. That's, that's the, 
student population at least. Um, and we recently have had a lot of racial tension come up in the community because we have a superintendent who is a black man who is pushing to close the achievement gap um, between students of color and the white students in the district. Um, and I've gotten to know a lot of the parents of um, mostly uh, some of um, like uh, the black students in the community and become engaged with that whole conversation. And every time I'm in a room, I'm like, I'm the only Asian American mm-hmm. in this room. And I wonder what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. And when I see things about Asian American children in the district, it's about these great achievements. And, um, you know, so I, I'm always curious about what runs through their minds and whether they think mm-hmm. that I have a place there. Um, and then even still, yeah. faith-wise, I feel like I live in this very odd in-between space because I do strongly um, identify as Episcopalian, but what that means is my own thing, um, how I talk about faith, how I talk about God. Honestly, I, I don't even really like to use the word God right now at this point in my life, um, and, and that feels difficult too. Um, because I wonder, do I have to speak the same language or use the same verbiage Mm -hmm. in order to be taken seriously? Mm -hmm. Um, And I hope that I don't, um, but, but I often wonder if I do. Yeah. Like it's this, it, it's us learning as a culture to walk away from dualism And I feel like that is like prying fingers off of a rope that somebody's holding onto so they don't fall off a cliff. Um, We are so wrapped up in dualism that we cannot see the humanity that God has put in front of us. Um, And that is um, that it, Honestly, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart because we can't love each other or believe that we exist in the same plane or that we're going the same direction or whatever you may call it because we're hung up. It has to be either or. You have to, if if you're worshiping something, you need to have it. It has to be God. It has to be, you know, there's not, it can't be the essence or the presence, you know? Amy, when you're talking about the, just your experience in the school district and how you've 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 connected with uh, many of the black families, um, and, and and on one level maybe found common cause with them, and you know you know and there's a sense of solidarity there, and yet um, and yet a a narrative experience that I increasingly see, and, and this is from a distance. This is this is from uh, other Asian Americans who I follow on social media. Uh, who are who are kind of moving in many of these progressive, maybe post-evangelical or progressive Christian, or even even non-Christian, maybe just kind of kind of this intersection of progressive faith and politics sphere on social media. There's this narrative of the um, model minority uh, when it comes to the Asian American experience uh, in relative to 
uh, the Black American experience or uh, the the Latinx American experience uh, or the Native American experience. And I know that that's been a, a source of frustration um, because, you know, so often, you know, you know, the white expectation is, oh, well, you know, we're not being racist. You know, you know, you're the, you know, you're the good minority, you know, for, you know, for whatever. And, 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 you know, obviously there's so much problematic in that posture and that mentality in of itself. But, um, so, 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 so if you, if you would, what, what is your experience of that trope been? Um, and, and, and that could be as, as it relates to, um, to white supremacy and kind of predominantly white culture, or even as you've sort tried to navigate, mm. um, you know, postures or efforts of, of, of liberation and things like that with other people of color? That is a great question. Um, I think, well, I would back up a little bit first and kind of explain my own personal experience, like as an Asian American person, Mm -hmm. um, because like I said, I grew up in an Asian American church, but I grew up in a very white community, um, went to public school and honestly, outside of church, didn't really see myself as Asian American. Um, I remember even mm-hmm. all the way up until, until high school, you know, having good friends who would say things to me like, oh, I, I, I don't even think of you as Asian, um, sure. which meant I think of you as white. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time that felt yeah. like a compliment um, because I didn't, I didn't want to be different. Um, and, and part of this idea of uh, the model minority um, comes at a cost, I think, to personally for me part of what that means is that you are guilted and shamed into being a certain way so that you don't stand out um and i can understand that that at some point in time that was a survival thing um but that continues to be perpetuated because that's that's the image that we have right that we're smart or good at math um and successful and driven yeah. yep. and disciplined and all of these things, which mm-hmm. may be true for a lot of people. Um, but there are all these other aspects of Asian Americans that I feel are continually being squashed. Um, and for instance, um, if you watched the Golden Globes this year and watch Sandra Oh win, um, like that was a really powerful mm-hmm. moment just just for her to be Asian and be in the arts and have that be enough. Um, and mm. uh, for me, having chosen to go into a field like counseling as an Asian American, at coming from a culture where you, know, you don't talk about your problems, um, and if you do, you certainly try to hide them mm. because nobody should know about that. Um, and, and here I am kind of wanting to like, lay everything out on the table um and and break those molds um it it is difficult because you wonder if people have assumptions about you um and whether you'll get passed by for for somebody else because Mm -hmm. because of those assumptions um but in terms of interacting with other people of color I think sometimes I feel equally erased um, because because the struggle is not the same, and I acknowledge that um, full stop. That 
I have not ha- had the same experiences of oppression that um, people who have a much darker skin color than me have. Like I do stand out, but I don't stand out. Um, sure. And and so I feel like I'm always in a supporting role, which is odd because um, that's that's not really the role. I don't think I'm always supposed to be taking on. Um, and and I feel it more and more important to absolutely stand in what it means to be Asian American, what that's meant for me, what that means for other people. Um, and again, just let that be enough. Well, and you know, lack of knowledge on my part here, but from everything that you've just said, it seems like it may not be vocalized, but there is a desperate need within the Asian community itself to have someone like yourself stand up and say, this is important. We need to talk about what's going on. We need to talk about how our lives are affected and how as people of color, we have hardships too. And there's so many stereotypes and that it doesn't seem like that really exists. Am I correct? In I think there are that? pockets for sure of people who are part of those kinds of movements. Um, they are small and part of that has to do culturally with what's expected and, and literally with the size of the population. We're a smaller minority. Um, but I do see it taking place in a lot of social media platforms. Um, and uh, for instance, I am part of a community on Facebook called Progressive Asian American Christians, and there's over 6,000 people in that group, and they are highly organized, have put together several conferences, um, have their own like online digital magazine, and all kinds of things. Um, and it's been really refreshing mm-hmm. to see that there are a lot of other people out there, um, and I do hope that those voices continue to come to the forefront. So to kind of piggyback off that, you know, you mentioned mm-hmm. it's it's progressive Asian American Christians, um, which is which is a great combination of of identity markers. And one of your, if not your most recent blog posts, came out a little bit ago, um, concerned. I believe you called it. Actually, I think I have it up here somewhere. Um, here it is. You called it "Why I Stay," and. Basically, it's this brief outline of of why you continue on some level, at least, perhaps with caveats or, um, you know, kind of taking ownership of the definition, um, you know, for your experience. But but why that you have maintained to some level this 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 Christian identity along with progressive and Asian and, you know, and bisexual, some of those you can't choose for yourself, uh, whereas with this one you can. Um so in your words and from your experience, um, what value, if any, remains in maintaining that part of your identity? I think the biggest part is community. Um, even from people who I talk to who have completely left the Christian faith, um, that's always the thing that comes up. That's always the thing that's missed is is this built-in community um, in a very unique way around a purpose of some sort. Um, and, and I've now been part of enough, enough, uh, faith communities, um, 
whose purpose is centered around social justice to know that that can be a central point, um, that it's not all just about, you know, building up the numbers and, and um, kind of having a presence in the community, but that it's just about the community, the larger community mm. itself. Um, and to be honest, I have a very difficult time saying that I'm a progressive Christian. I actually wouldn't label myself that um, at all and just kind of shy away from using the term Christian in general. But I mentioned before that I would say that, you know, Christians are my faith family of origin. And there's something that no matter where I end up in terms of belief, that I'm always going to be tied to that in some way. Um, and that is part of why, Mm -hmm. why I stay. Um, and because I do still believe in redemption, whatever that means. Um, and that even the things Mm. that have in terms of being raised in a very conservative Christian environment and the ways that it's damaged me, I do believe that there's Mm. redemption there. Um, and that some of that can actually come from, from the church. Um, and and I believe that when it's done right, yeah. um, people like together were more powerful. So it's that community piece again, that I can walk away yeah. and have my own beliefs yeah. and feel oh, we'll totally say. accepting of we'll all say. those things, but I'm stronger with other people. Mm-hmm. That's such a, I, just to go, to the redemption piece of what you're saying there, it, it's really powerful because I feel like there's so many people, ex-evangelicals for mm-hmm. lack of a generalized term, um, who the redemption piece and that um, family of, or that faith family of origin just don't seem like they'll ever come, they'll ever be in the same space. Um, and I guess for me, what I hear in that is hope, um, because people, there's potential for hope, um, for a lot of us who have been so hurt by that space, by that family of origin. Um, it's, it's really, it, it's just, I'm really grateful um, to see others who can maybe not feel it, maybe not want to go back to that family of faith origin just yet, but to know that there's potential for redemption and we don't just have to um, eliminate those. Um, mm-hmm. It's because it's people, like you said, it's the community. We don't have to completely. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I actually came across a Facebook post today from, 2012 and it apparently was Easter on that um, on that day seven years ago mm-hmm. and it was just a, a quick little blurb about how redemption is not about um, doing away with and erasing the past as though it never existed but that it's about mm-hmm. changing and like bringing those things into something new and I think that's kind of how I see mm-hmm. um, my place right now in in terms of spirituality and faith um, is I, I'd like to bring those things along and figure out how to integrate them into my healing 
um, instead of seeing them as the enemy. And it's that, it's mm-hmm. that, you know, getting rid of that dualism again, it's both. And it's like yeah. that can both have been the situation that totally fucked me up. And somehow uh, there is, <laughs> there is a way to, to redeem that, um, which I think is, is really incredible. And, and yeah, it is the thing that I'm hinging my hope on. Absolutely. And, and so, so to piggyback off that and couple kind of with what Becca said, I mean, like I know from my own experience, I mean, it's getting almost once a day that whether it's listening to NPR or seeing something on Twitter or just, I don't know, facing my own individual existential dread, I'm basically the verge of, of an anxiety attack. Uh, we were, uh, my birthday was, was last week and, and we were out just at like a burger place for dinner. Cause that's all we really had time for. And it's a place we've been a bunch of times and I normally like it and the food was fine and the service was good. And, and, but for whatever reason, I suddenly was just having the worst time, like the worst time. And, 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 and everything my kids were doing was setting me on edge and I couldn't finish my food. And we get back in the car and I was like, I think I'm having an anxiety attack. And, and my, my wife who, is much more attuned with her emotions than I am immediately kind of just is, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. Anyway, all that to say, what with kind of all this in mind for you, like what is it that is either giving you or upon what do you build your hope these days? Cause as, as, uh, as someone kind of wired the way I just described, um, I'm always looking for other ideas. Yeah. Um, I'm with you. I, I have, frequent existential <laughs> moments throughout every day, every time my phone buzzes with a New York times headline um, or I see somebody post something mm. atrocious or um, yeah, it's, it is a daily struggle. I, I think that's one thing that, that I put my hope in is that it's a day to day thing. I don't need to figure it all out or necessarily worry um, constantly worry about the future. Certainly there's, there's purpose and meaning in thinking about those things. Um, but I think it comes back to my own story and my own experience and being like, if I can be the person that was who she was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and I can somehow be who I am now, then there has to be hope for change. Um, because there's, there's nothing in my story that is unique um, in this way that like I'm the only person that could, could have that kind of resilience. Um, I think it's in all of us. And, and so I do keep coming back to, yeah, like I was not who I am today, however many years ago. Um, And if I can change, if I, I'm an Enneagram four for whoever, um, that's meaningful for. Um, so if I can get to a place where I have a grounding in being comfortable with who I am most days, then, then I think there's hope for anybody. Sure, Absolutely. And yes, I think most of our people will be familiar with the Enneagram categorization. <laughs> this, we will probably be, we will definitely be past Easter when, uh, yeah. when, when we release this episode, but, um, just Becca chuckled when you said that because I have quite 
infamously, at least with people who know us, given up the Enneagram for Lent. <laughs> so, <laughs> What's that like? <laughs> I, I, I love the Enneagram. It has been a liberative and transformative tool um, in my life, in my marriage. Um, it has also been something that I think I have <laughs> allowed to become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I'm a five. And rather than using often the awareness of my fiveness to um, to integrate and to evolve and to, and, to, and to kind of be my best self, sometimes I, I, I can hide behind the kind of the tropes or the expectations that come with, with a five. And um, I say that first, because in addition to seeing myself do that, I also, um, I also have seen people um, both personally and professionally that I'm in a relationship with do the same thing. And so, and so I, I, for the, for the season of Lent, I resolved as best as I could to avoid um, beginning any sentence with as a five. Um <laughs> And uh, for for me uh, on that level, and then and then simultaneously to try to not <laughs> filter my experience of someone else through the expectations that come with knowing what their number is, and so, um, you know, and so so professionally, for example, you know, in the church that I work mm-hmm. at, you know, not coming into every conversation, kind of just knowing, okay, well, he's coming from that as a, as a six or as a three or whatever. So therefore that's why that's bullshit and that's legit and, you know, so on and so forth. And, um, so anyway, just a little context, but, but no, broadly speaking, very much appreciate where you're coming from as a four. I'm a two with a one wing married to a nine. So, and I, uh, yeah. Two, a lot of people don't like to be twos because, especially church culture, because they think it pegs them as your traditional helper woman. But yeah, my my four wing shines a lot. I think that's where I go to in health or whatever. So there you go. Um, Amy, what, um, tell, tell us we've talked about platform, we've talked about, you know, you're doing a blog, you're putting your voice in more on the social media, but in 10 years, I know, and this is hard because we just talked about being in the moment, <laughs> but in 10 years, where would, where could you see yourself? Like vision cast that out. I'm curious. Um, well, my husband's convinced that I'm going to write a book. We will see. But um, mm. I think, I mean, part of what I'm interested in, in terms of professionally moving into the, the therapy world, um, I'm really interested actually in religious trauma um, as a focus. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a lot of people who could benefit from um, seeing somebody who has knowledge around that. Um, particularly in this area, which is odd because this isn't really exactly where I want to end up, but I have been starting to realize that this is where a lot of those people are is kind of in this, not quite in the Bible belt, but close to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so, yeah, that's from a a professional standpoint. I'd like to be working um, with people who have had that experience as somebody who has had that experience. but this is a great question. Um, I was actually talking to a friend recently about how 
I struggle with wanting to say something important and meaningful. Um, and also I have zero desire to be like famous or have any sort of notoriety at all. Um, and, and so I don't, I don't know beyond that. Um, I just want to be doing work that is meaningful to the people that are around me. Um, I think that's all that any of us should really hope for is to be impacting Mm-hmm. the people who are directly in our circles um, and starting there and then seeing what comes out of that. Absolutely. I will say whether you write it or someone else writes it, and I'm sure these books exist, man, a book on religious trauma is needed. Um, mm. So needed. And so sort of a tongue in cheek question, um, considering your husband's line of work, uh, would you let him help with the editing? <laughs> uh, probably. He does already edit uh, the stuff that um, that I have done for various various things, um, and and I do trust him to keep my voice still. Good. That's probably the highest compliment you could give an editor. So, mm. so uh, I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know, um, uh, kind of what David Congdon has done with with. Um, um, his PhD and stuff like that. He actually helps. He used to act, he used to help academic theologians edit their published work, and now he's kind of doing that in the realm of political science. So that's where the editing would come in uh, when it comes to uh, the book that it sounds like Amy's going to now write. <laughs> I am now tied into that because I said it on a podcast. <laughs> there you go. But I mean, like your story has so much. No, nobody in this universe can write the same exact story as you just because it'll be told from your perspective. And I know you know that, but to be an Asian American, to be a queer woman, to be a mom, to be like, there's so many facets of who you are. And then you bring in religious trauma and on top of all of those unique qualities that make up the wonderful being you are, like, I just think that there is such an amazing perspective and point of view that so many people just need to hear. So I'm just going to thank you. So first off, Amy, um, one of the things that, I've really appreciated in following you on social media is that you'll drop these witty, sometimes funny, often insightful haikus uh, pretty frequently, um, you know, in this poetry that you write. And one question that, um, that we've been asking everyone, despite Becca not believing me uh, (laughs) that we've been asking um, everyone at the end of every interview is is to really talk about, um, you know, through their journey kind of from point A to where they are now, um, what salvation means to them these days. And so, and so serendipitously, providentially kind of, kind of whatever, whatever you subscribe to these days, you, you, um, you know, about a week before we, uh, recorded this, you wrote a haiku that you titled salvation. And so, um, I don't really know what the question is. On one hand, I'd love to I, I'd love to hear what salvation means to you. Maybe uh, uh, maybe the best way to explain that now would be to read us 
that poem. Um, uh, but then beyond that, I would just kind of love to hear um, kind of where that, w- w- what, your, what your poetry means for you these days as well. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I have never really considered myself a poet. Um, actually, David, David is the poet as well. <laughs> Uh, but about a year ago, I had the privilege of going to um, a retreat of sorts. Um, it was the On Being Gathering. So, On Being Got to go to that last year. And one of the speakers um, writes haiku. Um, and he is like a bridge builder that were, has worked around the world. And he just talked about how writing these short poems has kind of become a rhythm. Um, and I walked away thinking, okay, that is something that I could probably handle. Um, it's very structured and it's short and it doesn't require a lot of time, most of the time. Um, and so I just kind of gave it a try and realized that there's a lot that can be captured in five, seven and five syllables. Mm-hmm. Um, plus the thing I really liked that the speaker said was nobody said that there's a, a word limit to the title of the poem. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> you can add as much as you want in there. Um, but poetry can be more powerful than prose. And I really like that haiku is short for the reader as well. Um, and it gives me a, a, it's a challenge in some ways to think that there are all these great big ideas out there and these important things that, that we need to be saying. And like, how can I say it as succinctly and powerfully as possible? Um, and so that's kind of where the inspiration comes for, for continuing to do that. Absolutely. Do you, do you mind if I read, read it and then, um, and then you can, if yeah, you want to unpack it or, or, or if you think it, you know, that says it, that's fine as well. So, um, so this is an Amy Congdon original shared on Twitter, perhaps other places, but I saw it on Twitter on April 4th. It's called salvation. And it says to be tied to those before and after us, this is eternal life. And I don't know. I just, it, I thought, I thought it was just a beautiful, succinct picture. Um, if not what salvation means to you, then 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 at least what salvation um, can and could mean. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so oddly enough, this was the first haiku that I didn't intentionally write. I was actually I, I've been working on a, a piece for Easter um, for this progressive Asian American Christian group. And was talking to the editor about it, um, and that was the exact thing that I said to her. And I said, mm. "This could be a haiku," and I pulled it, and it was already exactly in wow. the, the right <laughs> syllable form. Um, but I don't know what happens after this life. Um, and I spent so many years worrying about it and ignoring what was happening here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and I just didn't want to be thinking about that necessarily anymore. Um, and realized that no matter what happens, I am still living here in this moment. And if there is something great, if there is nothing great, because like the poem says, you know, we are intricately tied to 
every single person that came before us and every single person that comes after us. And so it's just this one long, like lifeline, um, that runs throughout humanity and it doesn't matter. Mm. Um, it's often how I think about liturgy when I'm, when I'm in church is, you know, somebody else, however many decades or hundreds of years ago may have been saying these exact same words. Um, and I get to share with that or in, in that with them in this moment, um, across time. Um, and, and how beautiful and powerful that is. Um, you asked that question earlier, Becca, about <clears throat> for people who feel like they're alone. Um, one of the things that has been really um, redeeming for me has, has been finding uh, stories and literature and fiction and poems that have been really meaningful to me um, when I'm feeling in those places where I, I don't have that community or I don't feel seen or, or understood um, is that I often find that in, in somebody else's story and realize that I'm, I'm not alone. Um, somebody yeah. has been here before and somebody will be here after me. And, and my hope is, um, that I continue to live a life that, um, contributes both back and forth, um, in that story. Awesome. Thank you. So, Amy, after everybody has had a chance to listen to bits and pieces of your amazing journey thus far and challenging journey, where can you give them some social media links where they can continue to learn more and also your website and all of that good stuff? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so my blog is amyecongden.com. Pretty simple. Um and I, I write less frequently than I would like to, but I like to think that I only write when, when I feel like it's really meaningful. Um, and then as far as social media goes, I am on Twitter. It's at Amy E. Congdon. Um, and I'm also on Instagram, and that's A.E. Congdon. Um, and I try to keep all the content uh, separate and different. So if you follow me on different platforms, you will see different um, and unique content. Awesome. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much for spending time with us and being willing to um, share part of your story with not only us, but those who are listening. And I just, I just know that the words you said are going to affect people's lives. I just do like it, the, our willingness to step forward and when we give ourselves permission to be just like you said, listening to other people's stories, we see ourselves in it. And I know that people will see them different parts of themselves in your story. So thank you for letting that be visible and heard. You're so welcome. Thanks so much for letting me share. Thank you for joining us on permission to be. I'm your host, Becca Epley, and thank you to my good friend and co-host, David Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and you'll never miss an episode. We are available on all the major podcasting platforms. And while you're there, if you would leave us a rating and or review, 
We are always looking for more and more ways to hear from our listeners. You can find the links for today's guests in the show notes located at BeccaEpley.com. We do hope that you will join us for our next episode.